Welcome to the ninth session of Let's Keep the Amazing in Grace. This session is entitled Entering the Holiest, and that phrase comes from Hebrews 10, and it refers to entering the presence of God through the blood of Jesus when the veil of separation is torn. And we studied the veil in 2 Corinthians 3, the veil that comes from the law that ministers condemnation and death. But we know that Jesus fulfilled the law. He put on human flesh, lived a holy life, and then as our Lamb of God, He took on all of our law-breaking. So He became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so I say He became the veil that separated us from God. And that veil was torn and His blood was shed to wash away our sins. He paid the wages for our sin. And He died in our place. And when He did all of that, He showed us who God really is. In John 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in verse 16, And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, Jesus, declares Him. So God in heaven can't be understood by man, but God veiled in human flesh reveals Him to us. As Jesus said in John 12, 45, He said, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. So how do we know what God is like? We look at Jesus. He is the image of God. He is the exact representation of His nature. Read the Gospels. He loves unconditionally. He doesn't count men's sins against them. He touches lepers. He accepts those who've been rejected by others. He heals. He feeds. He delivers. And the only people I can see that he got angry with were the self-righteous hypocrites because they misrepresented God to the people. Now we look at Jesus to see who God is, but the old covenant believer had a veil over his heart so he couldn't fully see who God was. But 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Now, the glory of God, what is that? That is the goodness of God. That's the grace of God. But the old covenant believer had that, that veil of condemnation over their hearts so they couldn't see. So God shines the light of revelation. He lifts the veil so we can see His glory. And where is the only place we will see the glory of God? That is in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, in the context, the veil of the law must be removed before someone can see Jesus and fully know who God is. So that's why I spent so much time talking about law and grace and the need to remove every perversion of pure grace from our thinking. The more we know God in His grace, the more intimate our fellowship will, will be and the more the power of the gospel will be manifested in our lives. Let's look at John 1.17 just for a second. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth 
came through Jesus Christ. Can you see from that verse that law is on one side, grace and truth is on the other side. Now, some people say that we need to balance grace and truth. And I know what they're thinking, that truth and law are the same thing. And that there is such a thing as too much grace. Well, not biblical grace. You can't have too much of it. But John 1.17 says law is on one side, grace is on the other, and truth is on the side of grace. So what is truth if it's not synonymous with law? Well, the definition, the, the Hebrew Greek word, excuse me, the Greek word is, is aletheia. And it means the reality lying at the basis of an appearance, the manifested. In other words, it's the real. So in Jesus, we have grace the unearned, undeserved, and unmerited favor of God, and we have the reality of who God is. And grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, if you look into this, the Greek word there for came is actually a singular verb. You know what that means. That means it has a singular noun. So it looks like we have grace and truth, but actually it's an inseparable whole. You cannot know grace without knowing the reality of who God is. And you cannot know the reality of who God is until you understand His grace. So that's why, once again, we'll be talking about law and grace. Um, so we can truly know Him. So there were two covenants, law and grace, two deals cut, one with the people and the other with God's Son. And I've said this before, but this new covenant was made within the infallibility of the Trinity between the Father and the Son. It was not made with us. We're simply the beneficiaries of it. And it cannot be broken because the only way it can be broken is if Jesus sins or Jesus dies and neither of those is going to happen. So one of these covenants kills, but the other gives life. One, and I like to do the bony finger, one is all about man's lack of faithfulness and goodness, but the other is all about Jesus's faithfulness and goodness. One shines a light on sin. One shines a light on the perfection of God's Son to remove that sin. One was given to bring out sin. The other was given to make man holy. One condemns, one justifies, and we're going to talk about this tonight, one simply covers sin. The other takes it away. One brings a consciousness of sin. The other brings a conscience full of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at several passages in Hebrews where the writer contrasts old covenant of law with new covenant of grace. And he calls the new covenant a better covenant based on better promises. A little bit of background. Hebrews, we do not know who wrote it. Uh, some theologians think that it was Paul. Others disagree with that. But there is no other book that so beautifully defines Jesus as our high priest, as the fulfiller of the law, and the author and finisher of our faith. Now, it was written to Jewish people. Some of them were Christians. The others, some, many, were on the brink of receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and as the final sacrifice for their sins. But at the time of the writing of Hebrews, there were still people making the old covenant sacrifices to atone for their sins, and the writer is begging them to stop. Why? Because the true lamb had come. And there is a lot of symbolism in this for us. Are we trying to atone for our sins? Are we trying to pay for them? 
or are we resting in the finished work of Jesus? So let's look at Hebrews 8. Now, this passage that I'm getting ready to read here is actually a quote from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It's an Old Testament passage about the new covenant. He writes, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. So God found fault with the old covenant. If the Ten Commandments had worked, if obedience to the Ten Commandments had worked to make man righteous, then there would be no reason for the new covenant. Jesus would not have needed to die. So God made a faultless covenant with eternal promises. In the next few verses, we're going to see what those promises are. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and I will write them on their hearts. So what are these new laws? Are they the Ten Commandments rehashed? Now, I personally do not believe that, okay? Because what are the Ten Commandments? The thou shalt nots. Thou shalt not. I believe what God wrote there is the I wills. And I believe it. He's speaking of Himself there. I will, by my Spirit, give you everything you need for life and godliness. And another way I know, I don't believe it's the old covenant or the thou shalt nots, is because that covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was burdensome. And listen to what John wrote in 1 John 5, 3. He said, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. 1 John 3, 23, he tells us what the commandments are. I count two here. And this is His commandment. Number one, that we believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And number two, that we love one another as He gave us commandment. The external demands on the flesh for righteousness has been replaced with the fruit of the Spirit from within, the life of Jesus Christ on the inside. Paul said in Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. James calls this the royal law of love, the perfect law of liberty. And Paul in Galatians 6, 2, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He doesn't call it the law of Moses. He says the law of Christ because that's the self-sacrificial love that's poured into us to where we will love one, one another and lay our lives down for each other. So in the new covenant, we don't love to be loved. We love because we already are loved. 1 John 4, 19, we love because He first loved us. 1 John 4, 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. In this new covenant, we don't forgive to be forgiven. We forgive because we're already forgiven. Ephesians 4.32 And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you, past tense. So, I say grace from the inside will do more than the law from the outside ever could do. So back to Hebrews 8.10 and another promise of this new covenant. 
and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now that statement is repeated many times in the Old Testament. And whenever God said, I will be their God and they shall be my people, it was because of his faithfulness to the covenant of grace that he had made with their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And whenever he said it, it was accompanied by some supernatural event where he intervened on their behalf to help them or to save them. And I believe that's a promise for us today. In verse 11, we get another promise. This is a wonderful promise. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know you the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. In this new covenant promise, it's speaking of the Spirit of God living inside of us by whom we can know God personally, no matter who we are. It doesn't matter from the least of us to the greatest of us, we can hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. No matter how important we are, no matter how educated we are, no matter whether we're male or female, rich or poor, young or old, this promise is for every single person. Now what happened to cause this covenant to take effect? What was the covenant activating clause? Next verse, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now in that old covenant, it was all you shall not, you shall not. It was all dependent on you. God could keep his part, but could you? Absolutely not. In this new covenant, it's all I will. I will write my laws. I will be their God. All will know me. I will be merciful and I will not remember their sins. All God, all God, Jesus plus nothing. So after uh, Hebrews 8, he goes into Hebrews 9 and he continues with this contrast. He speaks about this tabernacle made with hands. This is speaking about that portable temple in the desert that was built by Moses where the priests would offer the sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. And that is contrasted with the perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not of this creation, but of heaven where the eternal blood of our Lamb of God is sprinkled on the mercy seat forever for our sakes. Now, Every single part of the tabernacle, which I wish I could go into, but I can't tonight, okay? <laughs> I got a whole series on the tabernacle. Y'all can watch if you want. But every single part of that tabernacle is a, is a shadow of Jesus Christ. And the blood is the central theme. And why is that? Hebrews 9.22, For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But we need to always remember when we read that, that the blood of Jesus has purged our sins and taken them away as if we had never sinned in the first place. Here's a prophecy right here, Isaiah 1.18. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah 43.25. I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I love that. Why? Because He loves us. And He says, I will not remember your sins. So the blood is the central focus. And the central figure is the high priest because he's a shadow of our eternal high priest, Jesus. And every sacrifice that was made was also a shadow of Jesus. Now, under the law, 
God was unapproachable behind a thick veil in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. And only one person, the high priest, could go into the presence of God and only once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer the sacrifices on behalf of all the people. So he represented everybody. But even with the shedding of the blood of those sacrifices, there was still a big problem. Hebrews 9.9, those old covenant gifts and sacrifices which were offered could not make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. Now remember, he represents everybody. Those sacrifices could never permanently remove the guilt and the stain of sin. There was always a sense of incompleteness because the job of removing the sin was never complete. You see, those sacrifices could never take away sins. They could never bring peace to the conscience. All they could do was cover those sins. In fact, that's what the word atone means. It means to cover. They would cleanse from the outside, but they could never transform the heart. However, Hebrews 9, 14, how much more? Shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God as our sin offering, how could that blood not cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So our conscience should be cleansed. And if our conscience is cleansed, we should be free from dead works. What are dead works? Well, the specific thing that he's talking about here with these people was the sacrifice of these bulls and lambs and goats to make themselves right with God after the true lamb had come. Those works were dead. A dead work for us would be anything that we do in our own self-efforts to try to make ourselves right with God apart from Jesus. And we all will fall into dead works when we don't have, a, before God, a perfect conscience free of the guilt and stain of sin. That means you're honoring the work of Jesus Christ. But what we do is we try to atone for our own sin. We try to cover it up. And we put confidence in our flesh to overcome the power of sin instead of putting that confidence in Jesus. And when we put confidence in our flesh, what it does is it leads to failure. And that failure will lead to condemnation. And that condemnation will lead to more sinning. We've seen this in the other passages we've gone through. And that sinning, that more and more you do this, you get into cycles of sin. And cycles of sin develop from wrong believing about who we are. We begin to identify ourselves based on our behavior rather than our identity in Christ. And we have what I call an identity crisis. And you will act like what you believe you are. And the more that people believe that God is demanding perfect behavior to attain righteousness, the more they are going to say this Christian life is too hard. I, and they walk away. And many have done that. But I want to give you a newsflash. It isn't too hard. It's absolutely impossible. And there is only one person who could do it. And his name is Jesus Christ. And we are, uh, we must, we are absolutely powerless unless we are utterly dependent on the life of Jesus Christ from within. So, Moving into chapter 10, we're going to see more about what it means to be perfect in regard to conscience. Hebrews 10, verse 1. 
for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come in Jesus and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach God perfect. Now, perfect in what regard? Hebrews 9, 9 says perfect in regard to conscience. Now, these sacrifices for sin were like sweeping the sins of the people under a carpet, but never, like I said, bringing peace to the conscience. Every year, more of that sin would be swept under the carpet. It would get fatter and fatter. It would look clean on the inside, but the dirt was still there. The next verse says that those sacrifices for sin in the Old Testament would have ceased to be offered if they had worked. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. They would have stopped offering the blood of bulls and goats and calves if it could have purified them. But instead, every single sacrifice was a reminder that the sin was still there and that the Lamb of God had not yet come. But the cross changed everything. The Lamb of God has come. John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I love to picture Jesus just lifting up that carpet, purging our sins and purifying us once for all. Hebrews 1, 3. When Jesus had by Himself without any help from us purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, you know, sitting down because the work is finished, not one morsel of sin remained. Does it seem too good to be true that God does not want us constantly making a list of our sins? Isn't sin consciousness what we've been taught our whole lives? Aren't we supposed to be on a perpetual sin hunt? And we search and we search and we find as much sin as we can. And then we ask our friends and our spouse and Definitely want to include our children because they're going to remind us of sins that we have forgotten. But I want to tell you there is no end to that search. And I understand that it's a well-intentioned practice because the goal is that we're going to remove that barrier of sin when we approach God. But that very idea frustrates the grace of God. Why? Because as I'm telling you, the barrier of our sin has been removed through Jesus Christ. And we, if we have that old covenant mindset, it's going to be a debtor's mindset. We're going to believe that we owe God something, mm-hmm. right? And we're going to approach Him with the fear of a slave. But I'm going to tell you, we do have a debt that we owe to God. You know what it is? Gratitude and humility because He stepped in our place and He became the final payment for our sins. But that old covenant mindset, those sacrifices were like a credit card. Up in Washington, they call it a CR, a continuing resolution. (laughs) Anyway, it's like a credit card. It just pushes the payment forward. But the debt is still there on their conscience. But in those old covenant sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. A reminder of sins tells you that either the payment wasn't enough or the recipient isn't happy. A reminder of sins insults Jesus, who is the payment, and the Father, who's the recipient. And it's as if you are telling God, hey, the cross of your son was not enough. uh, Verse 5 in Hebrews 10, Therefore, 
When Jesus came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering, Father, you did not desire. Why did he not desire it? Because it could not remove the barrier of sin. But Jesus says, a body you have prepared for me. So God prepared a body for Jesus. And in the most stunning demonstration of utter humility, Jesus became a human being. He was born a baby. And as C.S. Lewis says, the the Son of God became the, the Son of God became the Son of Man, that the sons of men might become sons of God. So he became a human being. Why did he do that? Because as God, he couldn't die. Hebrews 2:14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood. The Son also became flesh and blood because only as a human being could He die and only by dying could He break the power of the devil who had the power of death, but no longer dies, right? So Jesus was the only human being who was actually born to die. In Hebrews 2.17, it says, Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer the sacrifice of himself that would take away the sins of the people. So his blood, his sweat, his tears, his pain were experienced in a real body prepared for him. Philippians 2. I love this. Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance of, as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And we know that that obedience is what has made us righteous. Mm. Romans 5.19 So, as a man, he experienced all of the effects of sin and the curse because that's what sin demanded. And you remember on the night that he was betrayed, what he prayed to God. He says, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And then he said this wonderful word. And I say the whole destiny of humanity hung in this one word. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So he took the cup and drank it for us on the cross. He cried, I thirst so that our thirst would be quenched. On his worst day, and you can look this up, every single one of his friends abandoned him. You know why he went through that? So we would never be alone. Mm. And one day, probably 12 or 13 years ago, I wrote this, the blood dripping through the nail piercings in his hands says, my peace I leave with you. The blood dripping from his forehead from the crown of thorns says, You are whole in your mind. My peace I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The blood gushing from his side on the cross says, I love you. The stripes on his back say, You are healed. His bruises, his face all torn up, his head hung low, his nakedness says, I became sin that you might become righteous with my righteousness. So he took the cup of suffering, of sorrow, of pain, of disease, of sin, of shame, of condemnation, of wrath. But I'll tell you what the works won. Forsakenness. On the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had always called him father. But on the cross for the first time, he calls him my God. As the Son of Man, 
He became the son of man, calling him my God so that we as the sons of God could call him my father. He was forsaken that we might be accepted. So he came with this purpose and every single thing in his life pointed to that end result. He was on assignment from his father. In Hebrews 10 verse 9, he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And then he tells us what the will of God is. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. What does that mean? He took away the old covenant that he might establish the new covenant of grace. And then listen to this. And by that will, verb tense here, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And you know what sanctified means? Made holy, set apart unto God once for all. Now listen, verse 11, this is speaking of the old covenant priest. Every old covenant priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly. Why is he standing? Because the work's never finished. And in the Holy of Holies, there was no chair for him to sit in. There was only the mercy seat, but that belonged to God, right? And why did he offer repeatedly? Because these sacrifices only worked temporarily. But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. One sacrifice. Why one? Because it worked the first time. How long did it work? Forever. Why did he sit down? Because the work was finished. And where did he sit? At the right hand of God. The place of honor, authority, righteousness, blessing, and acquittal. And he did that on our behalf. Look to him. Verse 17 in Hebrews 10. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Seems to be a theme. I've read that three times tonight. It's in three different passages that I've read. Now, I love that word, now. Where there is a remission of these, in other words, where there is forgiveness of these sins and lawless deeds, there is no longer an offering for sin. There's nothing left to be done for you to be forgiven. Debt is paid. Therefore, brethren, having boldness, that's the word parousia again, having free and fearless confidence to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by new and living way, which he consecrated for us, through the veil, which is his flesh. There you see it again. He became the barrier that the barrier might be removed. And the minute that Jesus, the moment he was crucified, that veil in the temple tore from top to bottom by who? God himself. And he opened up the windows of heaven so that all people could have free and fresh access to the Father. And you know what Jesus said. What were his last words? I have it on my wrist. I have three bracelets that say it. It is finished to tell us die. Kala. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The same blood that tore the veil is the same blood that has washed our sins away so that we can boldly go into the presence of God by a new and living way. And the more we enjoy it, the more alive we're going to feel. Verse 21. 
and having a high priest, Jesus Christ, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. What's an evil conscience? The Greek word there is paneros, and it means full of labors, annoyances, hardships, pressed and harassed by labors. Are you pressed and harassed by labors? An evil conscience will bring you down. It will make you feel condemned. And all of this comes from the self-effort of trying to make your own way. An evil conscience is the kind of conscience that will tell you that you need to get yourself right before you come to the throne of grace. I call that an oxymoron. When we approach God, we ought to come with a conscience that is debt-free, labor-free, guilt-free, hardship-free, hassle-free. And you know what kind of conscience I call that? A conscience that's full of Jesus Christ and the work that He has accomplished on our behalf. Verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. That's why it's so important to do what we've been doing. Because every time we get together, and I see it happening, you know, before and after this, is that we're encouraging each other to look to Jesus, right? And we do stir up good works in each other. Not dead works. Not the kind of works where you got to go work hard for God to earn His approval. No, we are exhorting one another, pointing each other to the truth, to remind each other who Jesus is, what He has accomplished, what that means for us, who we are in Him, and now go do it. Go do the work that was prepared beforehand. You're a masterpiece, every one of us. A masterpiece prepared before the beginning of time to be born and to do something good to serve God and to serve mankind. Not as a slave, but just as an outflow of who we are. And all the more as we see the glorious day approaching of His return. Amen. Amen.